this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. We've been talking a lot lately on this show about happiness, what it is, where we can get more of it, why it does not yet seem to be available on the internet. Author Ruth Whitman presented some compelling evidence that the way most Americans are pursuing happiness is making us unhappier. Buddhist teacher Joseph Goldstein talked about a way of training yourself to be more generous and the happiness that this has brought to his life. In her new book, Aristotle's Way, classicist Edith Hall reminds us that Aristotle's virtue ethics was a sophisticated, subtle approach to the pursuit of lifelong happiness a couple millennia before Oprah thought of inviting us to live our best life. Offering no listicles of the top 10 happiness hacks, Aristotle tried to live and taught the virtues of an ethically guided, purpose-driven life with plenty of room for good friends, sensual pleasures, and long walks on the beaches of ancient Greece, Macedonia, and what is now Turkey. Edith Hall, my guest today, enjoys putting the pleasure as well as the rigor into all aspects of ancient Greek and Roman history, society, and thought. She's a professor of classics at King's College London, the author of more than 20 books, and a world leader in the study of ancient theater and culture. Welcome to Think Again, Edith. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm so glad to have you here. If Aristotle were alive today, would he delete his Facebook account? I think he might delete it except for public posts about what was available for the public at the Lyceum, his university, where, amongst other things, he invited the general public in every afternoon to lecture. That's actually how I use Facebook. I use it as a professional instrument to let people know what I'm up to. I think he would regard the whole language of friendship, liking and disliking, as utterly disgusting, though. One thing that stood out for me in your book, which I did not know before, mm. was you know how much of, in a sense, uh, of a populist Aristotle was, mm. at, at least that he wrote books both for the general public and also for an academic audience? Well, absolutely nobody seems to know it in the general public. And I think that the uh, professors of ancient philosophy have tended to keep quiet about it because they tend to be gatekeepers who want to keep this intellectual stuff inside the academy. And the the fact that the very guy they want to keep inside the academy was himself would be doing blog posts and things like this. He would be doing your, (laughs) your job. I mean, definitely, he would be doing exactly this. He'd have a podcast, probably. Yes, to try to get complicated ideas that he thought would help society and benefit both individuals and, and communities. There is no doubt in my mind he'd be doing that. So mm. actually, although it sounds really arrogant, and, and I, I, I don't know whether Aristotle would actually like my book, I very much felt I was trying to give back the idea of these public-facing lectures by explaining his basic recipe for contentment and purposeful living um, in a way that anybody who can read 200 pages of not particularly complicated English prose can get their head around. That's it. That's all you need to be able to do. We've lost a lot of the non-academic writings of Aristotle. The more popular writings are not available. We've lost all of them, except we've got some quotations, some what are called fragments, some bits. And I've actually just 
uh, because people have been writing to me. This, this book has been published in England already saying, where are they? Where are they? And I have just written a short piece that's going to be uh, coming out with an online free magazine called Eon Magazine. Yeah, and great magazine. They're, it's a, they're about to publish a 3,000 word essay telling you everything we know about his public facing pamphlets, which are much shorter, you know, very cheap. We know, for example, that, mm. you know, a cobbler, a, a shoemaker could like prop one up on a papyrus while he was mending <laughs> okay. a shoe. You know, they, 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 were, they were like meant for like buying, you could pick it up at the equivalent of a station to read on your, your train ride. And could it, that be why we've lost them? Because of like the materials they were made out of? or uh, No, because of all of his treatises <laughs> were, it's the point is that the custodians of these materials, which were for a thousand years, they were Greek, Byzantine, uh, Latin, medieval and Arabic scholars. They were much studied in the Arabic world. Didn't think, they were scholars, so they wanted the really complicated books they didn't think to copy out the stuff mm. during the whole Middle Ages when nobody was interested in educating the masses, right? That's the real tragedy. So they didn't think they were valuable. I think they may have been more valuable in terms of the possible outreach that they could get. But I've managed to piece together what we know about them. And anyway, Aristotle's books as they are, which they're studied in, in universities, are beautifully clear. Once you actually start reading him, he, he has a very, uh, it's not an arty prose like Plato. You know, it's a very workmanlike. But all I've done, because I'm very, very fortunate that I can mm. read, read ancient Greek, is I just decided about five years ago to read every single word he'd written in Greek. And just okay. try to explain, like, to my children who are teenagers, to my husband, who's a, a smart bloke, but he's a journalist, he's not an academic. If I could get them to understand, then I worked that out with them and then just wrote it down. And I'm getting, I'm really pleased to say, a lot of the ideas in it, as he probably gathered, I hope would be very useful for young adults. I want to talk about some of those ideas in just a second. I was going to ask... Do you think there's a place and a value for, well, obviously you do, some kind of new Aristotelian movement, like in the way that there are meditation groups, yes. in the way that there, should there be some sort of institutionalized? I would love that if I get sufficient sort of feedback that that would be encouraging. I think I'll set up a website and maybe we can have people sending in questions like, how would Aristotle discuss this particular issue? And we could try to apply the kind of ideas I hope we're going to talk about. But that's in the future. Um, I genuinely do feel like a secular missionary, though. I do think that if everybody in the world got a basic training in just fundamental ethics, there is it's just a basic set of intellectual toolkits that you can teach people, basics of logic, basics of how to make a decision, basics right. of trying to figure out what your own best potential is, basics of taking the fear out of death, these sorts of things, we could make a much, much better world. And he was extremely interested, as you know, in whole societies as well as individual happiness. And I'm delighted to say that I've just heard yesterday, because you can do this with any religious background, provided you're not a fanatic. I mean, you, it, it is not compatible with fanaticism <laughs> with of any fanaticism. kind. But you, you know, and I'm delighted to say that I've just been told that it's going to be translated into Arabic in Egypt. And oh, it's already being translated into Chinese and Taiwanese and also in Iraq and Turkey. So my hope Excellent. is that we could even build a sort of world secular ethics that would help us, which is we need so badly in the 21st century, a secular it, ethics that transcends 
your ethnic religious background. I would be very interested also in hearing some of the dialogues back and forth yeah. between this and say non-fanatical Islam, exactly. Buddhism, Christianity, etc. Well, there's um, a lot of, when you were talking about Buddhism and training yourself to be more generous. I mean that is a very very similar idea to Aristotelian training yourself to be just a better person who is treats other people better. So let's let's move into the ideas and let's yeah. talk broadly about what is unique and specific about mm. Aristotle's approach to ethics and leading a happy life. I think I always like to start with the human, the individual human. What was so revolutionary to me when I first encountered him when I was uh, at university was that he is the first person in world history ever to say that man is an animal. We're just an animal right? Mm. We are different from other animals in certain very interesting ways. Like we like to live in big communities together, like cities. And that's right. what that man is a political animal actually means. It just means man likes to get together in big cities, not just kin groups, not right. just running around like a pack of dogs, but with other packs of dogs. Right? <laughs> right. And that's why Darwin loved him. Darwin loved him because he's the first person mm. to say we're not special. We're not created by God in any special image. For the listeners who may not know, Darwin and Aristotle had naturalism in common. Aristotle was was an extensive naturalist Natural scientist, long yeah. before I even knew that that was a thing. But you start off with the fact that you're an animal, which is a great relief because it means that he, as you said, wants people to have sex lives and eat nice food and, and look after themselves and have, have pleasure because he sees in animals, pleasure is a drive to good things like reproduction, survival, right. that sort of thing. So you start out with that idea that it's perfectly fine to be an animal and a physical being. But then he thinks, what is it that we can do that we don't think most an other animals can do? He's trying to narrow down as a scientist empirically by mm. um, processes of elimination, what is specially human? And he comes right. up with various things. One is this advanced brain, which means we can deliberate and make decisions about how to behave. We're not just driven on autopilot. We can right. recollect, we can actually do very formal acts of memory to try to keep hold of our past and plan our future. Mm -hmm. We've got humor, now, he's now thought to be wrong. People think that higher apes have humor, but we certainly okay. have got this wonderful human gift for laughing at things. Right. So I found that idea, we, we start with that. And we have this gift that means that we can make a much, much better lives. We have been given far more of the gear sticks at the control board than most mm. other animals. So once you started with that sense of who you are, and for me, that really rang so true as a young woman. You then start to try to decide, given whatever gifts you have or have not been given completely randomly at birth, <laughs> um, which ones to work on to improve, which ones to work on to minimize, and how right. to become, as Oprah says, the best possible you. Uh, that is right. That that is what Which Aristotle is, is saying. Pretty Aristotelian, I was thinking. I would know, like that, that. I would like to go on her show and tell her she's just a peripatetic philosopher. See what she says. <laughs> For the listeners, uh, peripatetic philosophy. I, the <laughs> name is uh, delightfully comes from the fact that they were walking around yeah. while philosophizing. Yeah. One thing I find really refreshing as well about Aristotle, as presented in your book, there's a. There's a generosity with respect to the difficulty of this mm. process of decision making. There's an understanding that you're always trying to hit this 
the mean, but that it's yeah. not it's not an easy or even a possible thing to fully mm. do. It's not an easy option if you decide to try to apply Aristotle's uh, methods, and I see them as methods for uh, achieving greater happiness by feeling better about yourself and having better relationships. It does mean you've got to commit to giving a very great deal of thought to your life all the time. You've got right. to get off autopilot. You know, you've got to get off just instant responses to things. In one way, it's harder. And in one way, it's easier yeah. than, than following sort of prescriptive advice for yeah. happiness. Because if you follow prescriptive advice for happiness, you're constantly plagued by the sense that you're doing something wrong since it really doesn't work. Yeah. And <laughs> if you follow Aristotle's method, it's giving you the benefit of the doubt to say, look, this is not an easy thing and we're fine tuning yeah. all the time. Exactly. So instead of if you've got a moral problem, like, you know, shall I dump this friend because I'm unhappy in this friendship, instead of sort of finding a rule book in the form of a religious book or something else that just tells you mm. what to do, you've got to really work on it and decide for yourself and weigh it all up. That, that's all I'm saying. And, and right, he's, right. he's often called a moral particularist because every single situation is going to have different set of circumstances surrounding it. And you've got to make every right. decision, the nitty gritty, without applying to a universal rule, which means you've got to be a real grown up. You've got to be like your own God, your own lawgiver, mm. right? And that is incredibly, as you say, liberating in one way, because you're not failing some externally imposed standards. Right. But it also means that you've got to be very attentive if you're dealing with a difficult child. You've got to really, really find out everything you can about how they're mm. feeling. And you've got to really think about it extremely hard. So there's no simple quick answer, that's a good or bad child, punish them or don't punish them. Because there may be all kinds of data that you're not aware of. This is why he would have absolutely, and lawyers are very, the judiciary is very interested in him over this because he thinks that you can, lawmakers can never ever anticipate all possible types of circumstance and person who will come to court. So he right. would have hated the three strikes law. He would have, you know, abominated uh. it because it stopped the judge having to be a grown up, find out exactly what had gone on with this particular individual and figure out the right response in those circumstances. You've got to be like the judge who hasn't got a three strikes law, who has got actually maximum control over how you proceed in those circumstances. You might have someone who's stolen something from mm. a shop who you're not going to punish at all, if you know enough right. about the circumstances. Right, right. In fact, you might not only not punish them, you might try to get them accommodation, <laughs> give them some money. Whereas an, another person who's maybe, you know, a very well off person who's ripping off hundreds of people financially in their business is a bad person who's made mad decisions about damaging other people and, and needs to be punished. But you've got to be at that. You cannot find a book of rules that will tell you. It presumes a certain amount of wisdom mm. or a kind of scientific investigative ability yeah. in any, any given individual to be able to make those decisions. It's not for the lazy. <laughs> I, and I don't mean physically, I'm, I'm a couch potato, but I do spend an awful lot of time thinking and talking to people and trying to weigh things up. But I think an awful lot of us feel that um, we're not being given any guidelines how to do that. And I find right. when I, I do a lot of going around to state schools in, in deprived areas talking 
talking to teenagers about basic moral philosophy. Mm. Do you know the thirst for this stuff? Like nobody has told them how to pick a partner. No one has told them when it's okay to decide that you're going to actually leave your birth family if they're horrible to you. Nobody's told them even how to decide what car to buy because they're suffering from peer pressure and all the rest of it. And I find I find them actually madly writing down what I'm saying because they they want this help because they're not being taught basic ethics. And I, I'm campaigning in Britain to get basic ethics brought into every state school, like 13, 14 year olds who've got to start to become adults. And I am an absolute believer that it's deeply, deeply empowering. You know, if you were to design a school, I have an 11-year-old, just turned 11, and I'm constantly frustrated by his academically very strong school in the sense that there is no comprehensive sense of trying to produce a a whole good person out of of this. I mean, there are individuals who are supportive, but... Broadly speaking, how might one go about designing an Aristotelian school for the the whole person? An Aristotelian school for the whole person. Okay, well, he actually tells you in politics book eight. Okay, okay great. He start he starts from. It's actually this is just how interconnected it is with the community. He starts from his discussion of different the four different constitutions. Now that the politics discussion of democracy, monogarch, uh, monarchy oligarchy and tyranny is what every Mm. first year political science student has to start from. And it's the most important book on political theory ever written. He says democracy is the best system if it's working. It maximizes the chances of most happiness for most people. Mm. However, it absolutely depends on the voters being properly educated. If they're not properly educated in what they're going to be voting on, then it's not going to work and it's going to become ruled by the mob. Okay, now there's lots of contemporary resonances about democracies going wrong and turning into rule by the mob. So he says in book eight, let's imagine a proper state school. He says we get rid of all private schools. No okay. constitution, he said, was, is going to trust business people, okay, basically, to, to think what to educate their young with. We're going to sit down as a community and decide what, and there's a very important word in Aristotle, what are the things of public interest every voter, future voter, has got to know about. Gotcha. Now, in ancient Athens, that was things like warfare and athletics and the theatre. For us, it's definitely the environment. It's definitely religious fanaticism. It's definitely racism. It's definitely, definitely how to spot a bad lying argument, how to distinguish a true source from a false source. Actually, sure. that, that's very sure. platonic, actually. Aristotle didn't write so much about that one because his teacher Plato had done the masterpieces so well. And I might yet write a book on how Plato can help you spot somebody who's telling you a lie. Mm, (laughs) But um, so you have this school that amongst all the other skills people have got to learn, and he's a great believer in specialism from a certain age, you find out what you're good at. So everybody we were doing advanced cookery, advanced philosophy, advanced okay. car making, depending on what their thing is. But yeah. all of them, regardless of whether they're doing car making, cookery or philosophy, or learning to play the piano, because that's what yeah. they're good at, would all be discussing together civic and moral issues that will make them good citizens, partners, lovers, and parents. I want to run this school. <laughs> If you were running it, I think I might move to the UK and sign my son up. 
<laughs> well, let's talk a bit about love and partnership. Yeah. What does Aristotle say about yeah how you decide whether this person is the one, <laughs> well, for example? His, um, his discussion of friendship, the very fact we don't have a proper word to translate his word, which is philia, which uh. is where we got all our words like philanthropy from or, you know, whatever it is that you love. But it's very difficult. It's the same word for your like chosen life sexual partner and your fellow citizen and even your fellow citizen in another country, but just mm. in a mind in a different degrees of dilution. And he thinks you can only have perhaps maximum six or seven very, very, very close humans to you that you will do anything for, you care completely selflessly for that, you know. That sounds right. That you you don't even mind, you do good deeds for them without even worrying if they know you've done them because they're just so important to you. Now they are often your biological family, but they may well not be. And he's refreshingly for me i've had to dump a member of my much broader birth family Mm. because they were did not have my good interests at heart and a lot of people have been in that situation and he takes all the guilt out of that all the guilt goes out of that then you have the next rung out is what he calls and people don't like this translation because it sounds very calculating but utility friendships Okay. Mm. Now that means workmates with me. It's my students. It's people that I'm going to go through a certain part of my life with, but I'm not going to weep when I never see them again. And you have a certain understanding of what you're doing for each other at that time. So it might be you go on a holiday. It's the people you hang out with for two weeks, you know, and and, and you have a good time. It's all fine, provided you all sign up to the same contract that this is a utility friendship. Then you have pleasure friendships. Okay, and this is where the problem for the young come in, is because the young, when they really just like being with someone, or they really fancy them, just get all this pleasure, and they mistake it for a transaction about lasting moral qualities. You cannot hook up for someone for a 30-year marriage and bringing up a kid with them, say, if you don't have far deeper joint experiences than liking going to the right. movies or enjoying Bruce Springsteen. Showing my age, aren't I? <laughs> I just watched the Bruce Springsteen special on Netflix and loved it very much. So we're on the same the, page. The there. boss, the boss, <laughs> okay. the boss. But um, so what you, he says the tr- young people get very, very upset because they confuse these different signals. Mm. It's actually fine for them to have loads of different boyfriends and girlfriends mm. if they're quite aware that you cannot find out in two weeks whether this is the one, right? And that lust is not, unfortunately, an exact equivalent mm. for lifelong respect and mutual cooperation and so right, on. Right, but right. the pleasure friendship I found incredibly useful. What people do is it's someone, you know, I've got friends I love to go out for a drink with. They're incredibly funny. Would I turn up on their doorstep if I had had a bereavement or if I needed to go to rehab? No. Sure. Because that's not the nature of the contract. And the beauty of this is that it actually, I've had a couple of friends who I thought were best friends, who I tried to get much more serious help out of. And of course, they back off in terror uh, (laughs) for whatever reasons. So instead of getting rid of them, like, I'll never speak to you again, you know, you just move them in your head back to pleasure. Because these categories are fluid. One just of needs course. to be explicit about it. Yeah, and you, and you, might meet, you might meet a work colleague who you know, for whatever reason, might just become a wonderful spouse or a best mate forever. Then you right. sort of, but you've got to have that conversation with them then. 
Shall we go up Mm. to the next level? And only then do you start oversharing (laughs) or whatever. So it's just a matter of, and I found my own, my my teenagers, I've got an 18 and a 20 year old. They have found this thing when they've got troubles, as they all have, the pressures on these young people, especially with the social media about who's a friend and who's not a friend and people being really not. They have found this enormously helpful. It's just the three categories, the very close philoi, which will probably include your mum, but we all know mm. mums who don't cut it. And then you've got your utility friendships, which all your work makes right now. You and I are doing a utility incident. We've got something in common that we're, we're mutually benefiting each other. So share, she's doing what she's good at, you know, but we won't weep tonight at the thought we'll never meet. <laughs> do, do you know what you I don't mean? Know. I may, you, you, you just met me. I might weep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but people, all the myths you're told in the movies about love and friendship yeah, yeah. are not helpful to the young because they're not given these perfectly sensible categories and what almost all of them do is mistake a utility or a pleasure friendship in one day because they're horny (laughs) or they're just having an ecstatic experience of a temporary happiness they mistake it for the real thing and then they really get broken hearted I mean it's one of those things where it it might be hard to teach anyway sometimes young people just don't have the experience to believe somebody that's telling them something wise I did that bad marriage I did that bad marriage Mm, I actually mm. married an American citizen (laughs) I'm not, I'm not blaming her. That's always a mistake. I would never recommend that. Um, and my entire trip <laughs> on the grounds that I found him extraordinarily exciting, mm. right? And excitement is not the meat for a lifelong, especially as I knew I wanted to be a parent. So that was never going to work. And I had to learn by my mistake. And when I was 32 and that had all split up, I went out and thoroughly Aristotled up and, <laughs> and very deliberately looked for the father of my children. Right? Mm. I was looking for the mm. father of my children. Of course, it's nice if you get on as well, but that was the right. prior- that was the priority. And it's 28 years down the line, it seems to have worked. Score one for Aristotle yeah. there. Before we move on to the surprise clips and the second half of the show, this philosophy is about putting effort into thinking through how to live your best possible life, basically. And that has a lot to do with kindness to others, with with morality, with decency, with things that we just all generally recognize as as virtues. Yes. The... um fundamental thing in my dark days I lo- I was brought up Christian till I was 13 lost it all mm, and then too, what, what in a real w- wilderness till I was 20 really because I could not see a single good reason for not putting my own self-interest first if you're mm. not going to be punished in the in the afterlife if nobody's mm. going to throw a bomb at you why not just pursue whatever you want and you can't get into somebody else's head. You know those teenage things about solipsism. Right. And that. So why not do it? And that I found that deeply troubling because mm. the sort of capacity for human evil and to explode if you do that. But I, I needed an actual system. I needed an intellectual piece of information that would make me actually convinced that I would be happier. My self-interest right. was served by serving other people's interest. Mm. And that's what Aristotle gave me. And the relief that my sort of instinct for the good was actually logically 
correct. And I've even converted my husband into an Aristotelian mm-hmm. on the grounds of enlightened self-interest. So, for example, his politics have shifted to much more sympathetic to the poor mm. because mm. he doesn't want to live in a society full of very miserable people because that will make necessarily make you less happy. That's sort of the, the utilitarian yes. argument in a sense. But there's also a kind of the non-metaphysical karma argument, which is that happy, doing virtuous mm. things makes you happy as well. I think it's a sort of equivalent, psychological equivalent of endomorphin after exercise. I think there's a sort of, <laughs> right, right, right. sort of psychological equivalent. And the relief of sort of going to bed at night and knowing that you haven't really done anything very nasty and you have done yeah. your best. Nobody, you know, if you have done your best, whatever criticism is thrown at you, it's probably got a bad motive. And I found that deeply, deeply liberating. You know, if I know I have really done my best then to be nice to everybody and good to people and think about their own interests, then to hell with people. Whereas if <laughs> they can get me because I've got a secret guilt that I did something horrid, R- right? right? Uh, and I found that deeply, deeply liberating. And my biggest example of that was actually when I was about 25, I decided nothing I write anywhere, including private emails, would I not be prepared to stand by in public? Mm-hmm. I never bitch behind a door to somebody that I wouldn't be yep. prepared for the bitched about person to hear. Then you can't be blackmailed. You can't be blackmailed because you've only said things that you would actually say, well, actually, it's true. So I've, I've said, of course, like everybody else, negative things about my bosses to other colleagues. <laughs> but one of them once said, because she wanted to destroy me, I'm going to go and tell the, the boss you said that. And I said, go ahead. I told him in the pub last week. Right, 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 right. So that is an example of how, as you say, the sort of karma, it makes you far less sensitive to. And I've I've been trolled. You know, there is no woman who puts her head above the parapet that doesn't get horrible responses. Of course. Especially if you're post-menopause. Do do, do you know what I mean? It just goes with the territory. Are you a fan of how Mary Beard has dealt with some of that? And maybe you've dealt similarly. I don't know. But. Well, it, Mary Beard is a good friend, as you might imagine. I'm very, very proud of her because she um, has made it so much easier for the rest of us. I wouldn't have been that brave. You know, she's got balls, that woman. Um, <laughs> right. And, right. And, and in England, we're very often, in British radians, we're very often paired as she's sort of the mm. Roman and I'm the Greek. But that's I great. Isn't that great that the two women, the two humans who get asked to talk about this difficult stuff are middle-aged women. I think that's fabulous. Both of you are making these subjects, which can be taught in a very dry, esoteric, inaccessible way, much more charismatic and much more Fun, basically. I mean, I, I wouldn't make the broad generalization that there are probably no male classicists doing this. Maybe there are. Oh no, there are. are but, of course, there are. Yeah. Yeah, but still, it, I've found that delightful. And in, I think I think it years. is slightly related because as young women in what was then a very, still in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when we were doing our degrees, we felt very much like outsiders because there were no women in the profession. So I think we've always felt rather rebelliously on the side of the excluded because of that history, which means that we both developed humour to deal with it. If it doesn't destroy one, being an outsider is a powerful position. Yeah, just really basic democratic instincts. And you Mm. know what? I had been warned because of the government shutdown and the furloughs and all of the rest of it, uh, that there might be huge lines at Chicago O'Hare Airport at immigration. Okay. 
And they weren't, which was good. But then I got fingerprinted by a big guy, looked quite grim. I can't remember. It was had an Irish name. I wish I'd taken it. Red hair, Irish descent, Chicagoan. And he said, what are you here for? And I said, sorry, I don't mean to take the mickey out of the American accent. <laughs> uh, what are you? And I said, I'm giving some lectures at, at Northwestern and at the University of Chicago. I said, oh, what on? And so I said, do you really want to know? <laughs> this is my snobbery coming out, right? This is my snobbery, an mm. assumption about what he might be interested guy, in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I said, well, actually, ancient Greek philosophy. And he said, oh, I think Plato's really helpful when it comes to distinguishing alternative facts. And then we had a little chat about that. And then he said, but when it comes to communities, I go for Aristotle. <laughs> and I was being fingerprinted like this by this guy. And I said, he hasn't been to university. He listens, guess what, to podcasts constantly. Uh, when he's traveling uh, some ghastly commute, whatever, he just plugs in. And he, this guy, and, and I just thought, this is a lesson to me as I arrive in America, that, uh, you know, we hear all about your immigration crisis and walls and all of this sort of stuff. But here is an honest Joe to trying to develop his very big intellectual capacity in a working class job. Oh, I, That's you know, beautiful. It, it, beautiful. It, and it happened. It really happened. So I, I try to assume that everybody's interested and actually most of them are. When one gives people the benefit of the doubt of yep. being capable of thought, they often reveal themselves to be quite capable. And I think we will all prevail. Um, I mean, we have these great problems in Britain politically as well as you know, but I think, uh -huh. I, I think there is enough good people out there that this will be a passing phase. I think this is a good place for our segue into the second part of the show, okay. where we're going to, for the listeners, these are surprise video clips from <laughs> Big Think's archives. <laughs> They're just thought starters, and they may come completely from left field, and we'll go where we go with them. This clip will be Nick Offerman, the actor, talking about happiness. I, I often espouse... Uh a general philosophy in my life of, of pursuing a discipline of one sort or another. Um, but it's not, it's not to ever uh, approach any level of perfection. You start, you go in knowing that as human beings, we never can achieve perfection. And so um, I, I feel like mastery of any skill or art form um, really more involves uh, becoming much better at covering your mistakes. But no matter how much of a virtuoso a person becomes, I feel like if they're still uh, in the mentality of a student or pursuing their discipline, then they'll never finish, you know, ripping out a, a Beethoven symphony or playing a game of basketball and say, there, I've done it. That was the perfect rendition. Instead, what's, what keeps us living and uh, what keeps me uh, vitally engaged is a constant pursuit of betterment. So I, I, I gave up on perfect a long time ago and now, you know, I'm just chasing halfway decent. <laughs> well, I love the way he calls himself an actor and a woodworker. I think that's, I think that's uh, just terrific. I mean, I think I'm going to start calling myself amateur cook <laughs> and academic because it's, for me, it's cookery. I love this because if you take his formula for learning anything, any skill, that's all that Aristophanes mm. says, Aristotle says about learning the techne, it's called. It's just the skill of happiness, of, of ethics that will make you happy. So just as if you're going to um, learn to be a carpenter, you know, there'll be a whole set of basic techniques and 
you probably will never get to be absolutely perfect, but you will get better with practice and things will start. That's the same with learning to deliberate properly, take decisions properly, treat right. people well and move, move on in, in life. But Aristotle himself says there is a model of the perfect, fully fledged human philosopher who's a sort of attained moral perfection, but he's never seen one. <laughs> he says there is a model of the person who has so got everything down to habit that he no longer has to even think about being virtuous. You know, that is what you're heading for. But, but he doesn't even consider he himself he, he, No, that, no, not at all. Really? Not at all. He died at 62. And I'm, I'm very aware of this. I'm 59. You know, this is not in a bad way, but uh, you've got to feel that you've made okay progress from where you are. If you're going to do woodwork, then you probably realize that one thing that you're not so good at, right? I don't know very right. much about the technical things, but it might be not good at planing. So what do you do? You've got, of course, got to spend more time practicing planing than the things right. that you are good at. So Aristotle, you need, if you're going to sign up to this in your own mind, to do some very close self-analysis on what your weak and strong points are. And I, I had to do this. And it was very, very painful to discover where my, my biggest vices were. That actually takes me into exactly okay. where I wanted to go with this, which was in your career, because, you know, you, you have you know, a hugely impressive list of accomplishments and extraordinary schooling and so on. And then you come out and you're in this highly visible profession, <laughs> as you say, in a somewhat outsider position in that time in history, how you navigate that necessary personal growth, how you balance that against the kind of career politics of being being so visible and yeah. in that sense, having to look like you know what you're doing. Yeah. Well, it, it has been very difficult at times, and there's a lot of very poisonous behavior in academia. I'm sure there is in every profession. It takes slightly different forms. Academia happens to attract a particular kind of narcissist, though. You know, there are mm. a lot of big egos jostling for attention for very small financial stakes. <laughs> but, that, you know, that, that's how it is. And you do make enemies. You get jobs somebody else didn't. Your book gets the prize their book didn't. And it's highly competitive and people are yeah. very smart as well, which can create even more insidious, I would Absolutely. think, so forms I, of competition. I, I built up quite a long list of people professionally and per mm. professionally personally by the time I was about 30 of people I really wanted to get back at who had shafted me one way or another. And I realized when I, that this was incompatible with Aristotelian ethics, <laughs> is that I'm a highly vindictive person. And I isolated uh. this as my worst fault. I have others, uh. many others. Um, I had to work on an excessive bluntness um, and learn to be more civil, especially up the hill and so on. <laughs> gotcha. you know, we all have fight, but this is, this is my, my real problem. And of course, in academia, you then have lots of opportunities to shaft people secretly without them even knowing. I'm not talking revenge like a man who goes around. This is not Clint Eastwood. I'm talking about just quietly not shortlisting people, right. quietly not shortlisting even down the generations, their students, you know, that really, really Ouch. awful stuff. And I had to uh, face the fact that this was actually the problem was it was making me unhappy because mm. I was constantly in the past thinking about what they'd done to me, right? I see. Instead of thinking see. into the future, how could I make a happy life? I am so far off being cured of this. But because I've acknowledged it, every time I get the opportunity to 
take some kind of revenge. I either recuse myself officially, you can do that. You can say, I can't be on this committee because mm. I have history with that person. It's toxic dwelling on this past misery. But with Aristotle, you, you know, I can just be very clear that they are my enemy in that, mm. not that I want to get do anything bad, but I can never trust them. Right. And Aristotle's fine about that. And this is so much I found more applicable to life than Christianity, where you've got to forgive everybody and cuddle up. Of course not. <laughs> if somebody's damaged you, you're not going to make them back a friend again, but nor do you need to pollute your life with getting back. But that's just my example. But everybody who wants to get to Aristotelian happiness has got to be very honest with themselves. It won't work. You know, you've got to, you've got to admit what your fault is. There is this interesting idea that you talk about in the book that even things that we think of as faults mm. are virtues in moderation. How would that apply to vindictiveness? Well, it does. And again, I think this is if people realize this about Aristotelianism, they, they would embrace it as so much mm. more practical and reasonable and in accordance with human nature than platonic Christian stoic thought, which tells you to repress mm. strong emotions, beat them down. Anger is bad, right? Aristotle is not polarized, anger, bad, calm, good. Right. It's all th always a three. So you've got the right amount of emotion in the middle, and then you've got two different kinds of deficiency. So let's stick with revengefulness. If you have no desire to get even with people who have damaged you or your dependents, you will not go to the headmaster's office when your son has been bullied at school. That right. emotion will get you into, the emotion will get you into the headmaster's office, right? Hmm. You, if you have no feelings of vengefulness at all, you are a pushover, you are exploited, you will be miserable. And you're, yeah. and you're not an effective moral agent in defense of yourself and those you love. However, if like me, I could easily turn my whole life into the dark art of getting back at people <laughs> even, even 30 years later, of course you know, I'm not going to be happy, right? So that's right. a typical example. He thinks you cannot be a happy and moral person if you're never angry. You know, Martin Luther King was angry. Absolutely rightly. What he did was then instrumentalize mm. that. Instead of going around hitting people, you take action. You go to court. You mm, organize. Mm, so mm. what you do is you turn the emotion into a soldier, not a general. It's not ruling you. You're using it to give you the energy. Is there a point at which an emotion simply becomes a thought? Instead of vindictiveness, it's an awareness and an understanding of justice. It's yes, a, that's right. This, this is wrong, you know, and should not be so. I think, A, there are some people who are just temperamentally don't feel things so strongly. I mean, I do, mm. I do, I do know. I'm, tomorrow I'm giving a conference on Aristotle with a professor called Richard Kraut here at Northwestern, who is just so calm and beatific. And <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't believe he's ever had a really strong emotion, you know. <laughs> But for me, I am a very passionate person. Mm. And Aristotelianism has therefore helped me channel and discipline that in good ways. I'm, I still have very strong emotions. And some of them are very, they're good things in a way. I mean, the fact that I'm good at making a joke out of stuff. Right. Now, if you take that to excess, it's insulting to people. It's inappropriate. You do it at the wrong time. You do it at a funeral. Right. right. Um, but your but your passion, yeah, makes yeah. you a better communicator yeah. of these things. And you can be a much more colorful and powerful sort of person than I think a lot of people think a lot of other philosophical systems will make them. For me, 
and, and if you know you're somebody who has strong impulses and emotions, then this is the one for you, not Christianity, not Stoicism. <laughs> Buddhism somewhere in the middle, but that's yeah. for another conversation. I think now, you know, in the time that remains to us, let's do the second of yeah. the of the two clips that we were going to talk about. And it's Stephen Greenblatt uh, talking about Adam and Eve. I think the first thing to say about the story of Adam and Eve is it's one of innumerable origin stories. It happens to be the most celebrated, the most famous and powerful origin story in our culture, central to Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Uh, but it's only one of many, many origin stories. It seems to be something that our species does. And as far as we know, other species don't do it. Uh, I don't think that chimpanzees ask uh, questions about the origin of chimpanzees or uh, bottlenose dolphins and uh, sperm whales. But we do ask, where did we come from? What were the first ones of our species? And this is uh, a, it appears to be a universal phenomenon uh, in culture to ask uh, about origins. And so this is a crucially significant version of the, of the kind of story that is generated. And we might ask, why? Why do we want to know? Why don't other creatures want to know? Well, I think there are a number of different explanations. One is our insatiable curiosity, including something like scientific curiosity. Uh, another is our uneasiness, perhaps, about ourselves and the course of our existence. Why do we, why is it so hard? Uh, why do we have to labor? Why do weeds grow in the fields when, and we have to, have to clear them out in order to get food from the ground? Why can't we just get everything we need naturally? Uh, why, why do women scream in pain when they give birth uh, to offspring, a totally natural event that is the part of the replication of the species? Why are men so miserable to women? Uh, and why do they put up with it? And uh, maybe above all, why do we die? So the story addresses in an incredibly powerful, though difficult way, uh, but in very, very tight compass, it addresses those questions and more uh, in a way that human beings appear to want and need uh, as a way of orienting themselves in the world. Uh, it's a way of understanding their fate. The fact that uh, the first humans are in a garden uh, where they're told that they can uh, eat of any tree that they want. They're vegetarians. Uh, and they can eat uh, uh, of any tree in the garden except for one, which they're prohibited from eating. Uh, and it happens that the one tree that they're prohibited uh, from eating is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and it was noticed a very long time ago, that is to say several thousand years ago, that uh, it's a problem to be prohibited from eating of the tree that will uh, enable you to distinguish between good and evil, since distinguishing between good and evil is presumably what enables you to observe the prohibition in the first place. Uh, so uh, that problem uh, bothered people right away, or at least maybe not right away, but at least 2,000 years ago. I'm just going to begin with the famous opening sentence of Aristotle's Metaphysics, which is one of his hardest books, but which is all human beings, without exception, have the desire for knowledge. And he thought that one of the great distinguishing features we began with what makes a human not a human, and, and, and Greenblatt did that with his bottlenose 
dolphins and so on, (laughs) is this yearning desire to know. And Aristotle says this is a good thing. And that is the difference between the Judeo-Christian sort of etiology, which is uncomfortable with knowledge, right? It's uncomfortable with that cognitive brilliance of Homo sapiens. You know, it's a bad thing Eve did. She want you know, to bite from the tree. Aristotle right. will have absolutely no truck with this. It is absolutely to be celebrated. And humans' desire for knowledge is actually when we're activating it, like now, you could say, right. you're having an inter- you become nearest, he says, to God. Right? He doesn't talk mm. about God much, but he says we become, because this is the thing that's unique to humans, when we're pursuing knowledge, we are nearest to what he thinks divinity is. He thinks it's some kind of total understanding. Sounds a bit like Stephen Hawking when he said, once, we, <laughs> once we've cracked the entire secrets of the universe, we will know the mind of God. That's what Hawking said. So. Right. Aristotle would have sort of had no truck with that. What he would have said, though, is that before philosophy was invented, and he was very aware it had only been around for 200 years, rational philosophy, Mm. that people used myths to explain the world. He saw philosophy as superseding and improving on wholly laudable efforts by the storytellers to explain the universe mm. before. He actually says that. So he does have respect for those. Totally. For that, that impulse, that early explanatory impulse. Uh, he cites the Greek equivalent of Genesis, which is Hesiod's Theogony. He uh. says, this is an amazing work by quite a primitive mind trying to understand and that philosophy is simply the cleverer child of myth. Mm. And, and, and Aristotle's teacher... Plato? Is is that Plato or Socrates? Yeah. Plato. No, Plato. no, Socrates taught Plato. Okay, okay, Plato okay. taught Aristotle. So Socrates is Aristotle's intellectual granddad. Okay, so, but Plato doesn't shy away from myth, but he does it in, in maybe a different way, in a somewhat metaphorical way or allegorical way, kind of, right? He, yeah. He, well, yes and no, right? I guess the, the Platonic forms are meant to be real in, in some sense. Now, Aristotle does not use myth in the same way when arguing philosophically. Plato mm. blurs them, confuses them, uses famously in the Republic, you know, the myth of Ur, the story of the guy who went to the underworld and, and, and saw what was going on, or the myth of Atlantis in the Timaeus. Right. Aristotle does not do that. Um, he saw a very clear distinction between mystical thinking and rational argumentation, which is why scientists love him. I mean, material scientists love him. Well, because it's very seductive. I mean, the storytelling Mm. is very seductive and it's very dangerous because in the case of Plato, as I recall, you know, you have that. So you have some things that are clearly metaphorical, like the origin of men and women as one being that got, that's not meant to be literally the case, but you can very easily build systems of control around these ideas. They're very compelling and seductive in that way. Yeah. I mean, Plato's standing at the midpoint between myth and philosophy from that point of view and would probably Mm, mm. be happy to say so. Aristotle is a very clean break. He is the father of modern thought. He invents empirical science, which we haven't talked about much, but, you know, where you go out with your own senses and record data and amass it and then infer scientific principles from it. He simply treats morality in the same way. You know, if I do the same thing 30 times, it has the same bad effect if I do it, then maybe it's time to start considering that there's something wrong with the thing I'm doing. Not 
Apollo smote me from afar with his arrow. So he was actually very wary of that kind of thinking because he thought it was clouding his, as he saw it, revolutionary new ability to infer rationally, empirically, even about God. He said, let's sit down and talk about the gods from first principles and what we can perceive. So I, I can see his reluctance, but we are told, to go back to the things we were talking about much earlier, that in his work, popular works for your carpenters and cobblers, that he was prepared to do, use storytelling more because he started from the stories everybody knew. So we right. know that we knew, know that one of them was on the soul. It was about immortality or not. And he had a satyr in it, Silenus, discussing in this dialogue, discussing whether or not the, the proverb not to be born is best is true. So in the wow. popular works, he might start because all the little children he was going to talk to, all the teenagers, they knew all these stories. So he had a different method when he was teaching the general public. In his works oh, for his when his works for his equivalent of his, you know, undergraduates and PhD students, I think he said, myth does not enter this door. We're coming to the to the close of our time together. I wonder if there's one thought or idea that we haven't covered that that you think we ought to leave people with. Well, I don't want to sort of sound and on a, on a down note, and it's not meant to be down. But the history of this book is that I was actually delayed a whole year finishing it because my mother was dying. And I had to spend a whole year, a lot of it, traveling up and down to Scotland and, and being at her bedside and so on. Um, and I could not write. I could not write about happiness. I felt extremely angry with Aristotle for not giving me the way through this one. <laughs> Here was a woman who tried to live a good life in absolutely horrible physical pain. And here was me who'd got a good relationship that was a huge plus in my life that I'd had all my life, a very, very good mm. friendship. And mm. I was going to lose it, right? And I could see no good here at all. But when then I went and I was reading Aristotle at the time in Greek on memory and recollection. And one of the things that he says makes humans different is that animal and nobody had said this before. Plato had absolutely not thought about mm. it before. Animals have memory. We know they do. We know we know Fido goes for the same walk or, you know, he knows where the right. biscuit cupboard is. Okay. They, as far as we know, do not have the ability to activate deliberate recollection, right? right? That is decide to sit and remember and collect memories and investigate. And I'd always loved this treatise as a professional because as a classicist, I regard myself as a deliberate recollector for the tribe, right? Okay. I help deliberately act mm. to preserve the memory of ancient Greece and Rome and history for people, right? That is my role. I'm a deliberate. Then I thought, I'm going to do this for my mother. And I sat mm. and made myself think of all the happiest memories I possibly could from my childhood, just alone with her, just her and me. And got my husband to drive me around the towns I'd been brought up, went through, talked to my siblings, went through photographs and collected about 60 intensely happy memories. Mm. And the last two months of her life, every time I saw her, I would just narrate one. She was all tubed up. She was conscious, though. And I certainly helped me massively. The most powerful one of all was when I was only about two, going down a water slide in an open air swimming pool in her arms. Mm. And the terror of going underwater, that fear for a minute, but having her arms around me and then popping up in the sunshine and her smiling face, right? Intensely powerful for me. And I described this to her and she was just patting my hand and she whispered, Dunbar. Now she was Scottish. 
and Dunbar is a seaside town. Mm. And I, there is no outdoor swimming pool there. I went and checked up afterwards, but there had been in 1962. There was. And that's exactly the sort of play. I know because she said that, that she had gone through the memory with me. I'm going to cry in a minute. This doesn't make me cry, this one. Um, I, I mean, we had a moment of, of blissful happiness recollecting there together, despite the horrible circumstances. And I try to do that every day. And every time I miss her now, and I do, it's only two years, you know, I constantly want to call, phone her. I replay this video and it always helps, you know, in my head, my internal video. So Aristotle's distinction between memory and deliberate recollection did help death and bereavement. It did. Even there, he didn't, he didn't let you know. Edith Hall, let's, let's leave Aristotle with the last word. This was a wonderful conversation. I very much enjoyed Same speaking here. with you. And thank, um, you for, thank you for reading it so carefully. I, it's a joy for me that you read it so carefully. It was a delight to read. It was very easy to read carefully. So thank you for writing such a, a wonderful book. Aristotle was a gap in my knowledge, and I'll, I'll want to go deeper now. Edith's new book is Aristotle's Way, um, How Ancient Wisdom Can Change Your Life. Thanks so much for being with me. Thank you. Bye. Once you get to the point in life where you think you've figured out some things that work for you, habits of mind, routines, values that give your life shape and meaning, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that there's always more to learn. Good old Aristotle, where were you all my life? Well, that's it for our episode this week. Please feel free to drop me a line with any thoughts at jason at bigthink.com. Next week's conversation is a lot of fun. It's with the copy chief of Random House. Benjamin Dreyer on the niceties and the not-so-niceties of the English language. See you here. See you then. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.